Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would help me to teach clearly and faithfully tonight. But more than that, we pray that you would give each of us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to respond in faithful obedience. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as I said, today we're studying a new sermon series in the book of Romans, which I think is the greatest book ever written. And I'm not just saying that like I say every book is my favourite book that we're preaching on. Uh, it is the greatest book ever written. When, when I'm asked to give advice to uh, to ministers starting uh, at a new church, like Mike starting at Leppington with the advice I gave him, one of the things I always say is you must try to teach Romans every five years. You've got to try to teach Romans every five years. Is that important for every Christian's diet that you just have to come back to it time and time and time again. There's other books of the Bible you may never get to. You may never preach on Habakkuk. You know, you might preach Haggai once uh, over 20 years, but you must teach Romans every five years. It's that important. So it's funny, uh, in November last year, when we were sitting down to plan the preaching program for this year, uh, Troy, in his quiet, understated, yet slightly judgmental way, said to me, <laughs> he said, Hey, Phil, how long has it been since uh, we've looked at the book of Romans? And uh, we looked back and it was a gentle way of him pointing out my failure to keep my own rules because it's been nearly 10 years since we looked at Romans together. So I have been a hypocrite, so I repent. Uh, But here we are now, back in the book of Romans. Now to help us understand how important this book is, I want to start with a bit of a history lesson tonight. Uh, I want to go back because sadly, throughout history, there have been times, many, many times, over and over and over again, where God's church has lost the gospel where the church has lost the gospel. Really, really sadly, right now, the the church that is historically behind the Anglican church we're a part of is doing that in England. Uh, The current Archbishop of Canterbury is turning his back on God's word. So you might have heard about this conference that's been going on in Africa called the GAFCON conference. I went to the last two of those. I didn't go this time. But uh, basically that was saying the rest of the world's Anglicans, we're sick of you because you're turning your back on, on, on the gospel, uh, and so we are just going to do our own thing following God's word. But sadly, so pray for the church in England, because uh, it's doing moving in terrible directions. But sadly, that's not a new thing. That has happened over and over and over again through church history. Nearly every time that has happened, it's been someone reading the book of Romans that has brought people, brought people back to Jesus and brought people back to the gospel. So, a couple of examples. One of my favourite people from church history is Augustine of Hippo. I just like saying his name, Augustine of Hippo. But in AD 386, he was sitting in Milan, in what we call Italy, crying in a garden because he'd lived a debauched life. He he didn't know what he was going to do. He was at a loss. And as he was sitting there, there were some kids playing a game in a neighbouring garden. As part of the game, they were singing a song which had the words, pick up and read. And his friend had left a scroll next to him where he was sitting. And so he thought, all right, I'll pick it up and read it. And you wouldn't credit it. It was the book of Romans that he read. And when he read it, he decided to repent of his sin and become a Christian. Uh, And of course, as I say, that was the book of Romans. This is what he said. I'll read it out. He said, no further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. That is what reading the book of Romans did for him. Now, you might have heard of him. Some of you might have, but many of you probably haven't heard of Augustine. He then became, I think, the most important church leader after the Apostle Paul in history. 
the most important Christian thinker, and it all started by reading the book of Romans. Another person who you probably have heard of, in 1513, there was a German monk called Martin Luther. Now, even though he was incredibly religious, even though he was a very religious man, he was incredibly unhappy because he could not see how it was possible for him to escape the judgment of God. Because he knew, he'd read the Bible, and he knew God is righteous. God is totally holy, and he knew he was a sinner, and he could not see how it was possible for any outcome other than for God to judge him and to judge everyone else. And so he couldn't work it out. Then he started to study the book of Romans, and he read the book of Romans, and he rediscovered the truth that sadly the church of his time had lost. He discovered he was actually right, first of all. He discovered he couldn't be good enough for God. He discovered that going to mass and saying prayers and that sort of thing couldn't pay for his sin. But what he then discovered was that he was made right with God, not by his works, but by grace alone. It was the free gift of God and he accepted that gift by faith alone in Christ alone. And Martin Luther then went on to become possibly the next most important Christian thinker after Augustine and the Apostle Paul. And again, it was understanding this book of Romans that changed him. Now, I tell you those stories because I want to say there is no telling what will happen when people start grappling with the book of Romans. When Augustine and Luther read it, it changed history. But on a smaller scale, the book of Romans has done that work in millions of people. Millions of people like you and I have read this book and it has brought us to understand the gospel. Uh, I really don't think it's an exaggeration when I say this is the most important document ever written. That's how important this is. So come with me into Romans. Now, I want to say as we start, Romans is sometimes not an easy book to understand. You are going to have to have your minds on today and this term here at church and in gospel teams where we're looking at it because what Romans is, though, it's, it's worth grappling with it, despite how hard it is, because it's life-changing, because what it is is the Apostle Paul driving to the heart of the Christian message. This is the Apostle Paul setting out the gospel for us so that we get it absolutely right. So if you want to know God, if you understand, want to understand how we receive God's forgiveness, how we have the hope for eternal life, the answers are in here. Martin Luther said this, it's up on the screen. He said, the book of Romans is our soul's daily bread and it can never be read too often or studied too much. This is a pretty big rap, isn't it? So that's how important this is. So let's get into it. Come with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And he says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. Now we're often tempted to just jump over the start of a letter. We do that often with all the letters of the New Testament. We also think, well, that's just him introducing himself. But what he says here is really important. Because what he's doing is he's setting out his credentials because he'd never been to Rome. This wasn't his church. This wasn't like the Corinthians or, or, or the Ephesians who he had that history with. Someone else founded this church. So this is introduction, sort of telling them why you should listen to what I've got to say. And he says three things. So the first thing, he says he is a slave of Christ Jesus. That is a massive thing to say, if you think about it. Some of our modern translations don't like using the word slave and they replace it with servant. That's really unfortunate. Because a slave is what he thought he was. Because a slave is not an employee. A slave doesn't clock on and, and clock off. A slave is the property of their master. And that is what he is saying about himself. He's saying, I am owned by Jesus. My whole life 
is surrendered to the service of Jesus. And straight away, I think there's our first challenge from the book of Romans. Do we count ourselves as slaves of Jesus? Have we given our whole lives to him, for him and his service? It's worth asking, because if we know Christ like Paul, then that is what we are. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Second thing he says, look with me, he says, I'm not just a slave, he says, I'm also called to be an apostle. An apostle is like an ambassador. It's someone sent on the behalf of the king or of their master. And again, this is really, really important to understand this. What Paul is saying here is, as I write this letter, I am speaking for Jesus. See, when the Australian ambassador goes to the White House in Washington, and when he speaks, he is representing our country. When he speaks, his words have the authority of the Prime Minister of Australia. Well, when Paul speaks, his words have the full authority of Jesus. Now, again, it's important to think about what that means. You see, sadly, what people want to do when they want to get out of following the Bible, and you hear this too often, I've heard it in gospel teams at St. George North, where people say, ah, only Paul is saying that, it's not Jesus. Have you heard people say that? They say, oh, no, 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 it's only Paul that says that, it's not Jesus, when they want to get out of something. And and sometimes our Bibles encourage them that because they print Jesus' words in red letters as if they're somehow more important than the other words. No, all the New Testament is the words of Jesus. All the New Testament has the authority of Jesus. When Paul writes, he is speaking with Jesus' authority. And I think that's important in another way. It means this is no casual letter. You see, this isn't just a wise man's thoughts. This comes with the authority of Jesus. See, I wonder if sometimes we don't appreciate that when we read the Bible or when we read the Bible or when we have it read for us here at church or when we listen to it. You see, we need to remember this is God speaking to us. That's what this is. When we remember that, I think it changes our attitude. So Paul is a slave of Jesus. He's also an apostle of Jesus. Having set out his credentials, if you like, his third thing he wants to say is, here is my message. Here is the message I bring you. He says, I've been singled out or set aside, look there, for God's good news, or as we often say it, for God's gospel. And so what is that good news? Well, the book of Romans is going to spell that out for us, especially the first four or five chapters that we're looking at this term. That's what it's about. But here he summarizes it for us, just as we start. So come with me. This is absolute gold. So I want you to look at it carefully. He says four things. First thing he says, it was a message promised long ago. Look at verse two. It says, which he promised long ago through his holy prophets in the holy scriptures. See, God's message about Jesus is the culmination of everything God has done and said right throughout all of history. It's not like God, you know, made Adam and Eve, they messed up, human beings tried a few things and then thought, you know what I'll do? I'll I'll try Jesus and see if that works. The plan was always to focus on Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. So every one of the prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah that we had as our first reading before, every one of them was talking about this good news. And it is the news, look at verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's good news for the world centers totally on his son, and that son is Jesus. You cannot know God, you cannot know God's forgiveness, you cannot know his grace apart from his son. Who, third point, if we keep going, was a descendant of David 
according to the flesh. Jesus was, yes, he was the son of God, but he was a real human being, flesh and blood, but not just any human being, he was descended from the great King David. And if you know your Old Testament, immediately you think that is actually the greatest of the promises, because he was the fulfillment of the promise of the Christ or the Messiah, the saviour king who God promises would come to establish his kingdom forever. But more than that, and the fourth thing, look at verse 4. And who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus was not just a king descended from David. He wasn't just a great human being. When he rose from the dead, or more correctly, when God by his spirit raised Jesus from the dead, God was making a declaration to the world. God was saying, this is my son. This is the one I have declared to be the Lord of all. Death cannot hold him down. He is the powerful Lord of the universe. And so Paul is saying, this is the good news we have. Here's my message I want you to know. It is about this man, Jesus, who is God's promised king. But more than that, he has God's seal of approval. He is God's son, and I declare him to be Lord of all. That is the facts about Jesus. That is the truth of the gospel. But Paul doesn't just want to share that information. He doesn't just want your mind to understand that about Jesus. He wants a response from you. So that's my next heading. Come with me. The message, the response, the message to Mars. This is verses 5 to 7. See, what does it mean for you that Jesus is the Christ? What, what does it mean for you that Jesus is God's son? What does it mean for you that Jesus is the Lord of all? What response does that require? Look at verse 5. He says, We have received grace and apostleship through him, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. What's the response he wants? He wants all the nations, that is, not just the Old Testament people of God, not just the Jews. He wants all people, Romans and Greeks, uh, Paraguayans and Chinese. He wants every nation, people from every nation on earth, to come and know and obey King Jesus. What other response could there be if you think about it? Kings are meant to be followed, they're to be obeyed. And Jesus is the king of the universe, so every person from every nation owes him their obedience. But the obedience to his demands is different to what we might think. Because look there again, look closely, what's the key phrase there in verse 5? What's the key phrase? It's the obedience of faith. What does that mean? told you you're going to have to switch your brains on, even on a Sunday night. What does it mean? What is the obedience of faith that he wants to see from every person on earth? Well, it could mean the one act of obedience that Jesus calls for is faith. The one thing he demands is that we believe in his name. That's a possible reading of that. And that's like in John 6, when people came to Jesus and they said, what are the good works we need to do? Uh, and what did Jesus say? John 6, 29, will come on the screen. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. See, sadly, you talk to people who claim I'm obedient to God because they live a good life. Or, or, or because they do acts of charity, or because they, they do religious things. But the one act of obedience that God actually demands, they won't do. The one thing God actually wants them to do, they won't do, which is turn and believe in Jesus and recognise that he is the Lord of all. 
It's really sad, isn't it? People who, who want to sort of present their obedience to God as if somehow that will pay for their sins when they will not do the one thing God actually wants them to do, which is believe in Jesus. Another option for what Paul means here, and you can think about these on Wednesday night in your gospel teams, another option is that he wants to see an obedience that flows out of faith. If you've brought along a different translation tonight and you've got a different translation there, some translate it as the obedience that comes from faith. So that would certainly fit with what Paul is going to say later in the book of Romans, that a true and living faith will always lead to obedience. A true and living faith will always lead to a changed life. Faith always leads to good works. That's what the book of James says. A faith without works is dead, he says. So both of those understandings are true to the rest of Scripture. I think the point he's making is more subtle than that. I think he's saying you just cannot separate these two things. If you claim to have faith, you will obey Jesus the King. Obedience and faith, faith and obedience, they just go together. They're just meant to be one and the same together. To believe that Jesus is the King is to now say, I'm going to obey him. Faith automatically goes alongside obedience. Later in the letter, Paul is going to explain, it is by faith alone that we are made right with God. It is faith, that response of trusting in Jesus and his message for salvation and eternal life. And we're going to see that it is the big message of this book. No one can save themselves by their obedience. It's only faith in Jesus that saves. But the one we put our faith in is Jesus the King. The one you put your faith in is the Lord of all. So to trust him, to, to follow him, is to obey him. See, there's going to be a coronation next week, if you didn't realise. We're getting a new king. Well, we've already got a new king. I don't think the coronation changes anything. Next Saturday night, King Charles III will be coronated. Now, if you're a Republican, you'll be not watching. If you're a monarchist, you'll be, well, I don't care what you are. But, but no one thinks that's changing anything, do they? Is there anyone who actually believes that's going to change anything about your life? No. Because modern king, we don't obey modern kings. They just do something over in England. We don't know anything about it. Not so the king of the universe. If you trust in him, you obey him. You cannot separate faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus. You can't claim to have one without the other. Christopher Ashe, in his little commentary, he puts it like this. It'll come up on the screen. Thanks, Tom. He says, The obedience of faith means bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus the Lord. I think that captures it. The obedience of faith means bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus the Lord. That is what the Apostle Paul writes this letter to create in us. That's the right response. If we get nothing else from reading 16 chapters of the book of Romans over the next little while, it is that we have that response to Jesus. That's what the gospel is meant to produce, us bowing our knee and trusting Jesus the Lord. Well, come with me. Let's go on in the message. Remember, as we get here, the apostle had never actually been to Rome. He didn't know these people. He's writing to people he didn't know, just like us, but he'd heard about them. This is a great theme in the Bible. When people become Christians, other people notice it. People talk about it. When, when people are gripped by the gospel, they change. People notice when you become a Christian, you have different priorities, you've got a a different focus. And so once Paul heard about these Christians in Rome, he starts to pray for them. And in particular, he prays that he might have the chance to get to Rome to encourage them. Look from verse 8 with me. 
He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, is my witness that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, I would love to get to Rome one day. I've never been to Rome. And I noticed our our screen for this series has the Colosseum there. I would love to go to the Colosseum. Who's ever been to Rome? Put up your hand if you've been to Rome. Oh, more than I thought. There you go. We're a well-travelled congregation. But uh, I've never been to Rome. I'd love to go there. If someone wants to care for their pastor, you can buy me a ticket and send me. I I said that this morning and someone thought I said Roma in Queensland. I said, I've got a friend who lives in Roma. You can uh, go and visit there. I don't want to go to Roma. I want to go to Rome. Uh, But if you think about it, if Paul ever got to that Colosseum, he wasn't going as a tourist, was he? Because what did they do in that Colosseum? They put Christians in the middle and they let lions chase them. If Paul ever got to Rome, he wasn't going as a tourist. He was going probably to his death. And actually, history tells us that is actually what happened to him when he got to Rome. He does not want to go and see the sights. Look at why he wants to go to Rome in verse 11. He says, for I want very much to see you. So I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. See, Paul did not want to travel to broaden his mind. Paul didn't want to travel as a a way of experiencing God's creation. Frankly, they are modern middle-class justifications for our travel. Paul's motivation was purely the gospel and people. Sadly, lots of people skip over these verses. Lots of people skip over verses 8 to 15 that I'm focusing on now because they want to get to the good stuff of Romans. They want to get to the doctrine. And we're going to get there next week. Verses 16 and 17 are absolute gold. We're going to get to that great doctrine. But I think these verses are gold because they are a wonderful insight into the godly example of the Apostle Paul. Just scan your eye over them again. I want you to think about this on Wednesday night. I love the way that you see what gives him joy. What gave the Apostle Paul joy? Hearing about people's faith in Jesus. That's what warmed his heart. I love the way he prayed for people constantly, even though he didn't know them. I love the way he wants to build them up and encourage them in their faith. But more than that, I love his humility. Do you see there how he knew that they would be an encouragement to his faith as well? I reckon it'd be pretty easy if you're an Apostle to be arrogant. And to sort of think, oh, I've got the answers. You should come and sit at my feet and listen. But he wants to go so that they could serve him in the same way that he serves them. So they could encourage him in the same way he encourages them. I think these verses are a great example of what it looks like to be a slave of Jesus. What it looks like to be gripped by the gospel. And perhaps the greatest insight into Paul and how he's gripped by the gospel is down at verse 14 and 15, the last part we're going to look at tonight. Because in verse 14, he gives us the main reason why he wants to come to Rome. Look there with me. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. It's a key word there. The word is obligation. The Apostle Paul felt an obligation. He felt a debt to tell people about Jesus. He felt, I owe you the right to hear this gospel. I owe you the right to hear the good news. Whatever your ethnic background, whether you're a Greek or a barbarian, I don't care. Whether you're wise or a fool, I don't care. 
I owe you the gospel. Now, why did he feel that obligation? Firstly, go back to verse 1, because Jesus had singled him out for the task. That's the first reason God had given him the job. But there's more to it than that. I think this is the sort of obligation that a medical researcher might feel if they discover the cure for cancer. How would you keep that to yourself? This is why we're always sort of upset and and annoyed at all the big pharmaceutical companies, isn't it? Because they discover cures and then they say, we'll sell it to you for a hundred bucks. You sort of think, no, if you've got the answer, give it, give it away. You have an obligation to help people if you have the cure. I remember reading about some researchers in America many years ago who were doing a trial on the effects of aspirin on heart disease. And part of the trial was they gave half the people, all these people had heart disease, half the people they gave an aspirin tablet to every day, half they gave a placebo, a sugar tablet to. Halfway through the test, they discovered that this was having an incredible effect on the people with heart disease, so they stopped the test and just started giving everyone the aspirin. Now, this is not medical advice. It may well be they've done other tests since then, and that's not helpful. I have no idea. I didn't study medicine. But the point is, when you've got something that's going to help... You just get on with it and give it away. They felt an obligation, and I think that's the sort of obligation Paul felt. He had the good news about Jesus. He had the message of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers grace and forgiveness to the world. How could he keep it to himself? I feel that obligation, and I pray that you feel it. I don't know about you, but as I sit in our city, and as I just watch people wandering around, staring at their phones for some reason people wandering staring at their phones for me captures the idea of people being lost there's nothing more lost than a person just wandering around like a sheep without a shepherd I look at our city I think all of these people are lost they're wandering towards a judgment they don't even believe in a judgment they don't they're wandering towards oblivion I feel that obligation I pray you feel it too Now, of course, we are not apostles. We have not been specifically commissioned by Jesus with the task of taking the gospel as his ambassador. But we know the same wonderful gospel that Paul knew. We know and believe in the same wonderful king, the same wonderful Lord. And so knowing the gospel, knowing Jesus, must create an obligation in us towards others. But of course, if you really know Jesus, it's actually not an obligation, is it? That's what I love about verses 14 and 15. Come with, them, come with me to those verses again. Do you notice how he starts off saying obligation in verse 14, but then it turns to eagerness in verse 15? I love that change. See, if you know the wonderful message of God's forgiveness in Christ, how could you ever keep it to yourself? It must be our greatest joy to hear someone hear the great news, to see someone hear the great news and believe. There's nothing greater than seeing someone move from death to life. Nothing greater than seeing someone come to faith in Jesus. This is why we never stop praying for our non-Christian friends and family, isn't it? This is why we push through the awkwardness barrier to, to talk to people about Jesus. This is why those guys are going to Fiji in the end. This is why we're always ready to give an answer for what we believe. This is why we invite people to the life course. This is why we, we want to be equipped ourselves to sit and read the Bible with someone and introduce them to our Lord. This is why we're excited when we send missionaries to, to Paraguay or, or to the Philippines or wherever it is and we support them as they preach the gospel. We don't do those things because God demands it. We don't do those things because we have an obligation. We don't do them to impress God. 
We do them because like Paul before us, we know the gospel. We know the good news about Jesus. So how on earth could we ever keep it to ourselves? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for this term ahead here on Sunday nights, but also on Wednesday nights as gospel team. Help us to grapple with the book of Romans. And we pray that we will be struck afresh for many of us, or perhaps struck for the first time for some of us by the wonderful news of the gospel. And in particular by the fact that we are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus alone. And so, Father, we pray that we would be eager to share that news with everyone because we know the wonderful news of salvation in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.